0: لِيُدْخِلَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا وَيُكَفِّرُ عَنْهُمْ سَيِّئَاتِهِمْ وَكَانَ ذَلِكَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا وَيُعَذِّبَ الْمُنَافِقِينَ وَالْمُنَافِقَاتِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ وَالْمُشْرِكَاتِ الذنين بِاللَّهِ ذنَّ السَّوءِ عَلَيْهِمْ دَائِرَةُ السَّوءِ وَغَذِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَعْنَهُمْ وَأَعَدَّ لَهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ that he may admit the believing men and the believing women to gardens beneath which rivers flow to abide therein eternally and remove from them their misdeeds, and ever is that in the sight of Allah a great achievement. And that he may punish the hypocrite men and the hypocrite women, and the polytheist men and the polytheist women those who assume about Allah an evil assumption. Upon them is a misfortune of evil nature, and Allah has become angry with them and has cursed them and prepared for them hell, and evil it is as a destination. as Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-2, Syria and Anatolia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. After the Ottoman Empire surrenders, the Allies impose their will on the Middle East. France takes over Upper Levant, that is, Syria and Lebanon. Britain takes over Lower Levant, that is, Palestine and Transjordan, as well as Iraq. In Anatolia, the Allies occupy Istanbul and Turkey, leaving the Sultan weak and powerless. Nonetheless, the Turkish people are already beginning to resist the occupation. And with that, let's briefly discuss the meaning of Syria. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level, plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. what is syria after the war there was some dispute as to what exactly constituted syria much of this confusion stems from the fact that the entire levant has historically been known as syria the arabs have historically called the levant bilad sham hence syria Levant and Bilad Sham historically have meant roughly the same thing. The word Bilad means land. The word Sham derives from Shimal, the Arabic word for left hand. Though it is not certain why the Arabs chose this word for the Levant, it might be because it is in the opposite direction of Yemen. In Yemen is derived from yaman, which means right hand. The word Syria that most English speakers use today comes from the Greek word for the Assyrians. The Assyrians were an ancient people who ruled much of this region. During the Umayyad Caliphate, al-Sham was divided into five military districts. They were Al-Urdun or Jordan, Damascus, Damascus, Hems, Homs, Philistine, Palestine, Kainosrin, northern Syria near Aleppo. When the Ottomans took over, they divided Syria into three different vilayets or provinces. The vilayet of Damascus, the vilayet of Beirut, and the vilayet of Aleppo. Prince Faisal in Syria. During the war, Sharif Hussein's son, Prince Faisal, commanded the soldiers of the Arab revolt operating in the Levant. He worked closely with a British intelligence agent named T.E. Lawrence. After the Allies captured Damascus, Prince Faisal expected to be put in charge of Syria. This is what he and his father were led to believe by British promises. Instead, the British informed Faisal that Syria and Lebanon had been promised to the French. Perhaps, they told him, France would allow him to govern Syria as a subordinate. Neither Faisal nor the French liked this idea. The Arabs may have tolerated the British, but they despised the French and the French knew Faisal was a British client and his loyalties were in London. This dilemma came up again after the war when the Allies were discussing what to do with the vanquished nations. Many officials within the British government considered the Sykes-Picot Agreement null and void and favored placing Faisal in charge of Syria. They believed Sykes-Picot was invalid because so many things had changed. Russia had been a party to the agreement, but had left the war. The United States was never part of the agreement, but had joined the war. One of Faisal's biggest supporters was his friend, T.E. Lawrence. He tried his best to convince the British cabinet to honor their promises to Faisal, but to no avail. The British Foreign Office had the final word, and they decided their written promises to France were more important than their spoken promises to the Arabs. Faisal was doing his best to strengthen his position in Syria. Perhaps the Allies would support him if they knew the Syrian people wanted him. On June 6, 1919, Prince Faisal called a meeting of the Syrian National Congress, consisting of representatives from all over Greater Syria. Greater Syria included the modern nations of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. The Congress drew up a memorandum which they then submitted to the King Crane Commission. The King-Crane Commission was a research project appointed by President Woodrow Wilson to study the post-war attitudes of the people in Syria and Palestine. The commission was led by American scholar Henry C. King and entrepreneur Charles Crane. King and Crane toured Syria and Palestine in June and July of 1919 polling the local people regarding their hopes and desires for the future now that the Ottomans were gone. The memorandum the Syrian National Congress submitted to the Americans expressed their opposition to a mandate over Syria. They asked the United States to stop what they believed was neocolonialism. When the commission submitted their report to the League of Nations, they included these sentiments helping convince some Westerners to favor independence. This slight change in Western attitude convinced Prince Faisal to try working with the French. After lengthy discussion with French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, the two men came to an understanding. Faisal would rule Syria with a high level of autonomy. However, he would still be subject to French oversight. Since George Clemenceau despised French imperialism and preferred to stay out of foreign entanglements, this arrangement worked just fine for him. However, the French political establishment and the French public did not feel the same way. France loved French imperialism. In January 1920, George Clemenceau resigned as prime minister. His replacement, Alexandre Millerand, also loved imperialism and made it clear France would rule Syria as it pleased. Prince Faisal had another problem. His own government, the Syrian National Congress, rejected his arrangement with Clemenceau and continued to demand immediate, unconditional independence. Faisal tried to warn them that this would bring conflict with the French, but the Syrian politicians refused to listen. Faisal was getting desperate. He wanted to hold on to power, but he did not want the Syrian politicians to know the truth. The Allies expected him to be a French puppet. So, Faisal tried to have it both ways. The Syrian nationalist politicians were getting bolder, declaring they were not afraid of war with France. Faisal publicly joined with the nationalists and also boasted about fighting France. But privately, he reached out to the Syrian National Party, an opposition group made up of former Arab officials of the Ottoman Empire. Like Faisal, they also did not want a war with France. The Syrian National Party ratified Faisal's agreement with George Clemenceau. They declared their desire for an independent Syria, but privately expressed their willingness to work with France. Taken by surprise, the Syrian nationalists saw their chance at an independent Syria slipping away. They called another session, hastily proclaimed the independent Arab kingdom of Syria, and named Faisal their new king. The French had their hands full with Mustafa Kemal and the Turks in Anatolia and could not respond to these developments. Taking advantage of this situation, Faisal went along with the nationalists. He declared his brother, Prince Abdullah, king of Iraq. Then he sent delegates to Palestine and Mesopotamia to inform the British officials that they were trespassing on sovereign territory. The Turkish resistance heats up. In May 1919, the Ottoman Sultan sent General Mustafa Kemal Pasha to disband the 3rd Army in Samsun near the Black Sea. Mustafa Kemal ignored these orders and began organizing the 3rd Army into a resistance movement. The following month, Kemal held a meeting with other military commanders at Amasya, about 45 miles south of Samsun. From this meeting came the Amasya Circular, a document calling for a national movement against the occupation. A week later, the Turkish nationalists held a forum in Kassir in western Anatolia. This was the first of five such meetings where nationalists made plans to resist the occupation. Rumors of these events eventually made their way back to Istanbul. Fearing the Allies, Sultan Mehmed VI dismissed Mustafa Kemal and demanded he return to the capital. Instead, Kemal led another meeting in Erzurum on July 21, 1919, which included Turkish nationalists from eastern Anatolia. Another congress in al on August 16 was attended by nationalists from western Anatolia. And the Sivas Congress in central Anatolia on September 4, 1919, included nationalists from all over the country. The Ottoman Prime Minister attended this final meeting and joined with the Nationalists in calling for unity and resistance. They signed the Amasya Protocol, which aligned the Nationalists with the Ottoman government. Later that year, Ottoman parliamentary elections were held and the Nationalists won by an overwhelming majority. The new deputies held their first official meeting in Angora in central Anatolia which was also Mustafa Kemal's headquarters. They published a memorandum called Misaki Mili, meaning National Pact, which called for a Muslim Turkish state. In January 1920, the new Ottoman parliament officially convened in Istanbul and voted to adopt Misaki Mili into law. The following month, They issued a statement declaring they were not going to submit to the occupation nor the partition of Anatolia. While the politicians were issuing statements, Mustafa Kemal was leading a force of 30,000 men into southern Anatolia to face the French. The Battle of Marash took place in Karan Marash, about 90 miles north of Aleppo. Armenian refugees had been brought here by the Allies to repopulate the region. Many of these refugees fought alongside the French against the Turks. Outnumbered, the French and their Armenian allies evacuated the town, leaving behind hundreds of dead soldiers and thousands of refugees. Many of these Armenian refugees were killed by the Turkish forces. British Prime Minister Lloyd George was shocked at how quickly things had changed in Anatolia. Within just a few months, the Ottoman government had reasserted itself and the Turks had recaptured territory in the south. Some of the allies encouraged Lloyd George to ease up on the harsh measures he laid upon the Ottomans. Perhaps, they said, that might convince the nationalists to negotiate new terms. But Lloyd George refused. It was not enough for him to beat the Turks on the battlefield he wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. He was determined to destroy Turkey and replace it with his classical European fantasy. On March 7th, 1920, Lloyd George ordered martial law be declared in Istanbul. Over 150 Turkish politicians and military officials were arrested. The Allies dissolved the democratically elected parliament and created a puppet cabinet to advise the Sultan. But this just made things worse. Law and order broke down in the capital and chaos spread throughout the country. Militias, revolutionaries, allies, communists, and bandits fought and clashed all over Anatolia. Meanwhile, Mustafa Kemal tried to maintain control over his nationalist supporters. From his headquarters in Angora, the nationalists formed a new government called the National Assembly on April 23, 1920. This effectively created a parallel government in Anatolia. The sultan was acting under duress, Mustafa Kemal declared, and therefore his orders were invalid. It was their patriotic duty to disobey him during this time of confusion. The truth was, of course, that the sultan was compromised and working with the occupiers. But, knowing most Turks were still loyal to the Ottoman dynasty, Mustafa Kemal did not want to say anything negative about him. Most Turks believed their sultan was a prisoner of the Allies, and this made the nationalists fighting the occupation even more popular. The San Remo Conference While Turkey was tearing itself apart, the Allies were finalizing their partition of the Ottoman Empire. In April 1920, they met in San Remo, Italy, to discuss the details. With the exception of the United States, representatives from all of the Allies were in attendance. By the end of the conference, they had come to an agreement regarding Greater Syria. France was officially granted a mandate over the Upper Levant, basically Syria and Lebanon. And Great Britain was granted a mandate over Lower Levant, basically Palestine and Transjordan. The Arabs living in the Levant were not consulted on this decision. And they were not pleased about it either. They wanted Palestine to be included as part of Syria as it has been for centuries. And they also wanted independence. But all of this fell on deaf ears. The Allies ignored the Arabs and they ignored Faisal's premature declaration of independence in Syria. The Franco Syrian War The British were furious with Faisal for declaring independence and drawing Iraq and Palestine into his scheme. To teach him a lesson, The British supported their French ally against their Arab ally. At first, France was too busy with Mustafa Kemal and the nationalists in southern Turkey to worry about Syria. Their military was overextended and they could not fight Kemal to the north and Faisal to the south. So they made a decision. On May 10, 1920, The French commander in Anatolia concluded a truce with Mustafa Kemal, abandoning southern Turkey to the nationalists. Then they turned all of their attention to Faisal in Syria. The French military commander sent Faisal an ultimatum, ordering him to step down. King Faisal knew the Arabs in Syria were no match for the French. He tried to convince them of this and they almost rioted and threatened to overthrow him themselves. As the French prepared to invade Damascus, Faisal offered to surrender, but by then it was too late. The French ignored him and the Franco-Syrian war was underway. It was all over pretty quickly. Syria did not have the political, financial, nor military infrastructure to fight a real army. They were outnumbered by the French who were supplemented with 17,000 Senegalese soldiers. By July 26, the French had subdued most of Syria. Aleppo fell a few days later. The coastal Alawite enclave of Latakia held out longer but was eventually subdued also. The French arrested Faisal and on July 28, exiled him to Iraq. Syria is French, Prime Minister Alexandre Millerand proclaimed, all of it, Forever. France divides Syria. Though Sunni Arabs make up the largest group in the Levant, this region is populated by various ethnicities and religions. For example, take the Golan Heights, just east of Lebanon, which had a large population of Circassians. Originally from the Caucasus region, the Circassians are a Sunni Muslim ethnic group. They fought alongside the Ottomans against the Russian Empire for nearly a century. However, in the 1860s, the Ottomans suffered a string of defeats against the Russians. Thousands of Circassians fled their homeland and resettled in the Ottoman Empire, primarily in the Golan Heights. Many of today's Palestinians and Syrians are actually descendants of Circassians. Just north of Lebanon was the Latakia region on the coast of modern Syria, which was populated by Alawite Shiites. Further north of Latakia was Alexandretta, which today is part of Turkey. But at that time, it was still part of French Syria and was predominantly Turkish. East of Alexandretta, in northern Syria, was Aleppo. The Aleppo region was a mixture of Kurds, Assyrians, and Bedouins. The French mandate of Syria at this time included modern Syria as well as Lebanon and parts of southern Turkey. With Faisal out of the way, France divided Syria into various administrative districts. Since Lebanon was predominantly Christian, France wanted to separate it from the rest of Syria. This would give France a friendly Christian ally on the coast. While most Lebanese Christians favored this decision, Lebanese Muslims, who did not want to be a minority in a Christian state, were opposed to it. Nonetheless, France went ahead with their plans and created the state of Greater Lebanon. This new nation, still under French dominion, was made up of the former Ottoman districts of Beirut, Tripoli and Mount Lebanon. The Treaty of Sevra. Mustafa Kemal was proving to be just as competent a diplomat as he was a warrior. After concluding the truce with France that gave him control of southern Anatolia, he reached out to Russia. In May 1920, Kamal sent a diplomatic mission to Russia to seek an alliance against Britain, their common enemy. The Soviets agreed to Kamal's proposal and began sending him money and supplies. The British thought Mustafa Kemal's overtures to the Soviet Union meant he was leaning towards communism. But that was not the case at all. Mustafa Kemal hated communism and would later persecute Turkish communists when he got the chance. But for now, the Soviets were useful allies that Mustafa Kemal needed. In the spring of 1920, Sheikhul al-Islam Durizade Abdullah, the highest religious authority in the Ottoman Empire, delivered a fatwa declaring the nationalists as kafir or disbelievers. The Mufti of Angora responded to this fatwa with one of his own, signed by hundreds of Islamic scholars from across Anatolia. This counter-fatwa legitimized the nationalists and declared Sheikh al-Islam's fatwa null and void. Nonetheless, the first fatwa sparked an anti-nationalist movement in northwest Anatolia. This movement was led by a group called Hilafet Ordusu or the Army of the Caliphate. But they were no match for the nationalists. Within a few months, the Army of the Caliphate had disbanded after suffering multiple defeats. Mustafa Kemal had money and weapons from Russia, religious legitimacy from the Mufti, and popular support from the people. In mid-June, he stepped up the fight for Turkey, attacking British forces near Istanbul. This shocked Lloyd George, who could not believe the Turks were bold enough to attack the British. But for all his bluster, there was nothing the prime minister could do about it. British forces were already stretched thin with demobilization and covering so much territory in the Middle East. And the British public would have rioted if he tried to start a new war in Anatolia so soon after World War I. So, he asked the Greeks to help out. Greece jumped at the chance to occupy Istanbul, which they still called Constantinople. Before it was captured by the Ottomans in 1453, Constantinople had been the capital of the Byzantine Empire where the Greek language and Greek culture dominated. With Lloyd George's blessing, Greek troops left Smyrna and pushed deeper into Anatolia. At the same time, just north of Istanbul, Greek forces crossed the Maritsa River and occupied large portions of Ottoman Thrace. With the Greeks doing his military dirty work, Lloyd George pushed the Ottoman government to do his political dirty work. In August 1920, Ottoman Prime Minister Damad Pasha and representatives of the Ottoman Sultan traveled to Sevres, France. there. They signed the Treaty of Sevres, officially breaking up the Ottoman Empire. By signing this treaty, the puppet Ottoman government not only acknowledged losing the Middle East, it also accepted the occupation and partition of Anatolia. The Greek, Armenian, British, French, and Italian troops that currently occupied Anatolia were there to stay. As far as the Allies were concerned, This was the end of Turkey. The successful Greek offensive had led to the occupation of Thrace. Greek troops in central Anatolia were pushing closer to Mustafa Kemal's headquarters in Angora. Soon, they'd crush the resistance and this whole business would be over. With the treaty signed, Lloyd George gleefully exclaimed, Turkey is no more. The Turks must not have gotten that memo, for the resistance was alive and well. Treaty or no treaty, the Allies could not hold all of Anatolia. They were under pressure to demobilize and focused on their countries, shattered from four years of brutal warfare. They had neither the manpower nor the willpower to maintain a military occupation in a foreign land. Except the Greeks. The Greeks were eager to fight the Turks and wanted to capture as much of Anatolia as they could while momentum was on their side. And they knew the best way to end the resistance was to go after its leader, Mustafa Kemal. The Turkish nationalists ignored the Treaty of Sèvres and kept fighting to take their country back. Their first target was Armenia, which currently occupied several provinces in eastern Anatolia. Lloyd George and the Armenians were hoping the Americans would accept a mandate over Armenia. But the United States wanted nothing more to do with this war and stayed out of it. On September 20, 1920, Kamal's forces invaded Sarakamish in eastern Anatolia. The Armenians and Turks clashed in Sarakamish, Oltu, Kars, and Alexandropol. But the Armenians were badly outnumbered. Finally, In December 1920, Armenia signed a peace treaty with the Turkish nationalists, agreeing to return Kars and Ardahan provinces to Turkey. This deal cut the Armenian nation promised by the Allies by nearly 50%. But Armenia's troubles weren't over yet. A Soviet uprising began in Armenia while the treaty was being negotiated. A few days later, Soviet forces invaded. Weakened by its war with the Turks, Armenia succumbed to the Soviet onslaught within two weeks. Armenia became a part of the USSR and would remain so until its dissolution in 1991. In the next episode, we'll discuss how Great Britain's plans for the Middle East continue to fall apart. We'll also be introduced to a new power rising out of Central Arabia. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, the Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu Allah. As-salamu alaykum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al ayyubi known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the subjugation of Mosul. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. The deaths of several leading figures open new opportunities for Salahuddin in Syria. Salahuddin begins a campaign in Syria and Al Jazeera, primarily focusing on Aleppo. Meanwhile, Reynald of Chatillon launches several audacious attacks against the Muslims. In june eleven eighty three, Aleppo finally submits to Salahuddin, but Mosul still stands defiant. And with that, let's discuss how Salahuddin finally united the Muslim Middle East under his authority. The Complexities of Empire By the summer of 1183, Salahuddin was the most powerful ruler in the Middle East, Muslim or otherwise. His dominion stretched across North Africa to Egypt. His authority went across the Red Sea, through the deserts of Arabia, and down to Yemen. He ruled Syria from Damascus, then north to Aleppo, and into southern Anatolia and Al Jazeera. But with such a large and complex empire came the difficulties of administration and management. For the most part, Salahuddin preferred to rely on his family to help him with the administrative functions of his empire. But family could only go but so far, and even family members have their own ambitions. His nephew, Takayuddin, was his governor of Egypt and had been extremely successful there. Takiuddin's army, led by his trusted general Sharafuddin Kodagush, had extended Egyptian authority across the North African coast all the way to Libya. But Taqiyuddin's success also made him a potential rival. Salahuddin had not been to Egypt in over a year and did not plan to return anytime soon. Salahuddin decided to reassign Taqiyuddin as governor of Damascus where he could keep a closer eye on him.